Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Hussein Haqqani from the Hudson Institute. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you all this afternoon uh, for this event on Pakistan and its military. Uh, first of all, let me just say that uh, it's just a coincidence that uh, the Pakistani military chief will be in Washington, D.C. Uh, next week. Uh, and uh, I just saw a uh, Washington Post story that seemed like a rehash of another Washington Post story that was like that four years ago, and then that, which was a rehash of a similar story four years earlier, which was about how uh, things are about to change between the United States and Pakistan uh, just because the Pakistani military chief is visiting. But as far as this event is concerned, we had planned it way ahead, uh, and it had nothing to do with the anticipation of the Pakistani Army Chief General Sharif being in town. Uh, this was meant to be an occasion to have two scholars who have published recent books uh, on the Pakistani military, different aspects, uh, both of them uh, eminent uh, academics. Uh, this is part of Hudson's uh, attempt to try and have a more uh, uh, a, a wider discussion about Pakistan as well as South and Central Asia, which is our program here. You can learn more about it from the material that is lying uh, at the table here as you go out, in case you didn't pick it up when you were coming in. Uh, in case of Pakistan, we must uh, understand that Pakistan has been an American ally since the 50s. It's often described as a difficult ally. Uh, yet, uh, the consistent feature in this relationship has been the Pakistani military. It was the Pakistani military uh, that sought the relationship with the United States. It's the Pakistani military that has sought to maintain it. Uh, the military-to-military -military relationship has always been stronger than the civil, civilian relationship always. Um, the Pakistani military remains the most uh, uh, powerful institution in Pakistan and, by all accounts, also the most popular. Uh, the Pew Research Center's Spring 2014 Global Attitude Survey showed that the Pakistani military had 87% uh, uh, positive uh, opinion amongst the people of Pakistan. And a Gallup poll uh, in Pakistan showed that 60% of the Pakistani population thought the military had a very good influence on the way things are going in Pakistan, uh, which was up by 16% over the previous year. Yet there are some stark realities about Pakistan. Pakistan ends up featuring on almost every uh, list of states that people think are likely to fail. Um, all non-military indicators for Pakistan uh, are relatively poor. In 1947, what is today Pakistan had a literacy rate of 16%. What is today India had a literacy rate of 18%. Uh, today, Pakistan's literacy rate hovers around 55 to 58%. India's is 78%. The 2% difference has become a 20% difference. Uh, many other indicators. Uh, uh, last year, for example, 90,000 new book titles were published in India. Uh, yet, the number of book titles published in Pakistan in all languages uh, were only 2,581. Uh, similarly, there are about 106,000 students of Indian origin in American universities. Uh, there are only uh, 4,000 from Pakistan, which is less than the number of students from Nepal. So what's going on here? Uh, sometimes people uh, think that any attempt to try and... Uh, uh, analyze the Pakistani military is necess of necessity somehow uh, critical of the Pakistani military. Uh, in the United States, you're all used to having people who disagreed, for example, with the Iraq war, but still felt that they could support their troops. Uh, 
uh, in Pakistan too. And I, by the way, I'm from Pakistan, so I must say I am one of those who would love to be able to support my troops and do the Pakistani military's political role and the Pakistani military's role as the defender of the nation needs to be understood separately. And our scholars today help us do that. Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Akil Shah hasn't uh, been able to make it down from Dartmouth, so I will be sharing some of his PowerPoint slides with you to give you the findings. This is a research project he did. Uh, his book is called The Army and Democracy, Military Politics in Pakistan. Uh, he had um, he did content analysis of the Pakistani military's uh, uh, training and educational programs to try and figure out what are the priorities. Um, and then to my left, of course, is uh, the great uh, TV Paul, who has come all the way from Montreal. He is the James McGill Professor of International Relations at McGill University, where he teaches courses on international security in South Asia. He's also the founding director of McGill's Center for International Peace and Security Studies. He has authored or edited 15 books and nearly 55 journal uh, titles. His most recent book is The Warrior State, Pakistan in the Contemporary World. It's just been published and I commend it uh, to, uh, to everyone in this room. Uh, so let me just get started with the discussion before I actually share with you Dr. Akil Shah's findings. My own view is uh, that the Pakistan military, as I pointed out, remains popular, uh, remains uh, the hope of the Pakistani nation, and yet uh, people associate with it uh, certain decisions or even certain, or uh, shall we say, policy orientations uh, that at least need to be debated, both in Pakistan and outside. Um, it seems to me that uh, Irving Janus's view about groupthink may be applicable here. Uh, less debate in Pakistan. It's assumed that any attempt to try and analyze the army as an institution is somehow anti-army, which it does not need to be. Uh, there can be people who actually are sympathetic to the army as an institution, but while they are looking from outside, they might have a different view. Uh, for example, I'm just uh, uh, the reason why I started by saying uh, uh, that you know this event was planned several months ago and had nothing to do with the army chief's visit here is because the sort of uh, we are under attack kind of attitude makes some people in the Pakistan embassy wonder whether we were doing this just to disrupt. Uh, the army chief's visit and, and be negative about it. We don't intend to be negative. In fact, uh, neither Akil Shah nor T.B. Paul, and I certainly uh, do not have a negative view per se of the military, but we would like to be able to have an intellectual and academic discussion of the groupthink of the Pakistani military. Uh, a, a characteristic that uh, Janice points out of uh, groupthink is that... Uh, Remaining loyal to the group by sticking with the decisions to which the group had, has committed itself when the policy is working badly and has unintended consequences is an important element of groupthink. You think that, you know, what we've decided is it, that is the only right way, and those who offer an alternative way or say that maybe this policy is not necessarily the right policy. So in case of Pakistan, Pakistan's national decision uh, to invest uh, in its national security over and above everything else may actually have impeded Pakistan's national security because Pakistan's economic capability is an integral part of national security. You cannot have uh, national security without having economic capability. 
Uh, and I am sure that uh, TV, TV's book actually talks about this. Why is it that Pakistan could not become, say, for example, a South Asian? Uh, a South Asian. Can, can we get this? Uh, how do I do this? Yeah, let us put it. Okay, right. So, Akil Shah, in his book, Democracy in Pakistan, Military Politics in Pakistan, actually makes the argument, and he's now at Dartmouth College. The book is now available. He, makes the, he, he conducted several interviews with military officers, looked through the Pakistan Army Green Book, looked through the training curriculum, journal, and strategy papers that have been written at the National Defense University, looked at the archives, British cabinet uh, uh, documents, uh, Pakistan cabinet rock, uh, records, India office records from pre-1947 to try and figure out why is it that the Pakistani military has had certain consistent uh, thinking patterns, among, and, and especially about political issues. Uh, usually, uh, having civilian control of the military gives an advantage. The civilians can debate much more freely without spoiling the discipline of the military. They can come up with different policy ideas. The military is able to absorb them. Major Who is the enemy is a decision usually taken by the civilians. And the military is the one that actually locates the enemy and liquidates the enemy at the operational level. In Pakistan, according to Akil Shah, and this is Akil Shah's findings, um, the, the point of view is different. For example, on coup d'etats, most Pakistanis think that coup d'etats are not a good idea. Yet, three-fourths of military informants viewed a coup as a legitimate form of regime change under crisis conditions. Three-fourths believes pol civilian politicians were incapable of managing national security. Very sort of fixed view. Uh, Two-thirds considered politicians as unfit to rule. Without exception, officers advocated a permanent watchdog role for the military in governance. I'm sure that argument can be made that this is particular because of Pakistan's peculiar situation, but there are other countries that had similar points of view. Uh, I'm sure a Latin American survey in the 80s would have been something similar, but the Latin American militaries have re, uh, shall we say, restructured themselves, thought the issues again, and uh, most of the Latin American countries have come out of the shadow uh, of Praetorianism. Uh, then Akil Shah says, he quotes Parvez Musharraf, General Parvez Musharraf, the last, last military ruler of Pakistan, uh, that the army's, army's guardian role is rooted in its professional training, which is based on developing pat patriotism and character. And more than that, a sense of group relationship where a person sacrifices for the benefit of the group. And then as we progress in the army, this becomes ingrained in us. The assumption is that this is, this is a, 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 an advantage that the military has, uh, but the civilians do not. So, for example, being in a political party or having struggled for many years for democracy, for example, etc., etc., in the Kamra, is not necessarily comparable. Or being an academic and, you know, doing a PhD, becoming an assistant professor, researching the subject over many, many years and developing ideas, that is not comparable. There is somehow uh, uh, the... the, the, uh, the uh, the group relationship uh, and, and, and the uh, uh, sort of uh, altruism of the military is greater than that of the civilians. That's, that's Akil Shah's finding. Uh, so he, for example, uh, uh, quotes from the Army Green Book from 2000. I'm sure that that has changed because now the army has been far more supportive of democratic governance in the last few years, at least uh, uh, not necessarily in policy terms, but in terms of the appearance. Let the system remain while we may want the 
civilians to make the policy decisions we want them to make, but we will not necessarily take over. That change has come in Pakistan for the moment. But here's the thing, that gone are the days when the sole role of an army was limited either to invade or beat, big, beat back the invaders. Geopolitic, ge geopolitical and geostrategic regional compulsions of South Asia have made the revision and redefinition of Pakistan's Pakistan army's role an, as a necessity. So you have a large number of retired Pakistani military officers who have now gotten involved, a, a disproportionately large number of commentators on Pakistani media and television, for example, are recently retired military officers who think that it's part of their uh, moral responsibility to keep the nation in a certain direction even after retirement because the civilians are not necessarily uh, capable of doing that. Now, the National Defense University of Pakistan has declassified some of the research and some of it is classified. So the declassified papers were examined by Dr. Akil Shah, and he found that 70% of their declassified papers between 2000 and 2006 were concerned with resolving civilian and political problems. They were not purely military matters or what would be construed as military matters internationally. They were purely civilian matters, reforms of political parties, administrative reforms, decentralization, uh, eliminating corruption, civil service reforms, tax reforms, and professional soldiers did not think that that was not necessarily what their function was at the National Defense University. They thought it was perfectly fine for them to have all this analysis. Very different, say, for example, from the National Defense University here, where it's very unlikely that somebody would actually uh, be doing a paper on, you know, uh, the Republican Party's uh, sort of uh, um, uh, economic policies and its uh, uh, and and their failure purely without linking it to national security directly. Uh, similarly, the research papers had several themes. He's quoted several extensively. You know that parties shouldn't shouldn't uh, should have internal democracy, which is correct. But is that the forum? Is the question that Akil Shah is asking? Uh, he also says that Pakistan has too many centers of power. The Senate should be abolished. That's one of the papers written by one of the army officers. National Assembly seats should be rationalized to include technocrats. Again, another common theme going back all the way to Pakistan's first military uh, ruler, Ayub Khan, who always thought that politicians uh, need the guidance of technocrats and the army to be able to make major decisions uh, for the future of the country. Um, then... Now he goes that he says that there's a norm that has been developed, and even after the military relinquished direct power in 2008, the post-transitional military politics, he says that in 2012, of the 987 contact hours in the NDU course, only two hours were on the Constitution of Pakistan. So basically, that the Constitution is the mainspring of, of legitimacy is not necessarily something that is essentially which is why you, which explains, for example, the Constitution in 1956 was written, was abrogated within two years under martial law, then a new military, uh, sort of a, a Yukon-led team, technocrats and some military officers wrote a Constitution in 62. That was subsequently abrogated. But the 73 Constitution, which is supposed to be the consensus Constitution, has twice been put in long periods of what was described as being in abeyance, meaning the Constitution existed, but it was not implemented under Ziaul Haq from 77, to 1988, and then uh, 1985 actually, because he did restore it partly uh, in 85, and then under General Musharraf from 1999 um, to uh, uh, 2002, and subsequently 
2008 in two different phases. Uh, one fourth of that lecture, the two hour lecture on the constitution, one fourth of it was about the constitutional role of the armed forces. Not the constitutional role as in the armed forces are responsible for defense uh, and dealing with uh, uh, security of the borders, but the constitutional role as in the larger constitutional role of keeping the country on track. Now, for example, the former director general of the ISI, uh, Lieutenant General Ahmad Shuja Pasha, actually said this publicly. It's on the record. He said that the political leadership lacks the aptitude to read basic defense policy documents and even the ability to think. They cannot formulate any policy. Of course, uh, I can tell you from personal experience that those civilians who can read policy documents and express opinions are not necessarily liked by uh, the likes of General Pasha either. Um, so, 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 so there is an issue here. Uh, the ones who can't read, he complains about them not being able to read. Those he can read and who come to different conclusions than him, he doesn't like them because he thinks that they are inherently unpatriotic for having a slightly wider and different worldview. Similarly, there was the Pakistan Army Greenbrook of 2011 has a piece where his governance is a complex business and politicians lack the requisite educational level. Increased percentage of technocrats in parliament to 50% to ensure correct management and planning of available resources for the development of the country. The point being, there is not, no bar in the Pakistani constitution from a technocrat going and running for office or working with a political party and getting into position. That's how it works in most countries in the world. You know, uh, you, 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 the, uh, politics is not actually, there is no such thing as a, well, there is, but it isn't. Like the political class can be challenged by non-political people, but that hasn't, that's not the approach here. The approach is somehow top-down, you know. And the requisite education level, I don't know how many people remember when General, uh, when General Musharraf took over, he actually amended the constitution at one point to require all members of parliament to have a college degree. Uh, all that did was it, uh, improve, uh, it increased business for those making fake degrees. Uh, it did not necessarily change uh, the, the, the makeup of parliament, uh, which basically raises the question of how do you change politics, uh, which necessarily cannot be done uh, just by the military, according to Akil Shah here. Uh, then he says, on national security, there are very fixed views uh, going back all the way uh, to 1947-48. India is still enemy number one. Terrorism is seen often as sponsored by India, sometimes by the United States, via Afghanistan, the goal is perceived to be, these are Akil Shah's views, by the way, not all of them completely shared by me, so please be, 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 be warned on that, especially those who are going to be reporting this to the Pakistani government. Um, uh, my file is pretty bad as it is, you know, don't, don't, don't spoil it unnecessarily. Uh, uh, the goal is to implode Pakistan to denuclearize it, which many people who are uh, in the business and analyze it globally do not agree with. This is a perception there. So here's the group think. You know, there are people outside who think it can't happen. No country, I mean, the Soviet Union was not denuclearized in the, uh, in, 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 by causing an implosion. How would Pakistan? But they continue to believe it, and those from outside who want to have a different point of view, their voices are not necessarily heard. Asymmetric warfare is often considered a weapon of choice by some. Uh, the, the, this, is, this is all taken from NDU National Strategy Papers and the Army Green Books by Akil Shah. So that was Akil Shah's findings. Uh, he, he isn't here uh, to sort of answer questions. I'm sure Dr. Paul and I can try to answer some of his questions because we were together in a panel earlier. Now, I invite Dr. T.V. Paul. His book, 
uh, the warrior state basically looks at Pakistan in the contemporary world and asks some very fundamental questions. I'll let him do the talking now. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're, 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 you're allowed to applaud. Clap, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Ambassador Haqqani, for that very kind uh, introduction, and um, uh, Dr. Uh, Aparna Pandey for organizing this event. Uh, I must say that you have a very professional two-member team, but I think you're getting a lot more attention for the two-member team. Uh, really, uh, you know, the work you're doing is getting a lot of attention, which, is, which goes to credit to both of you. Uh, my effort, I'm, I am not a typical Pakistani specialist, I want to warn you. I'm a South Asia scholar. I'm interested in Pakistan as part of my understanding of the regional dynamics. And I was doing a book on South Asia's uh, state capacity, weak states. And then I stumbled upon this particular phenomenon, why Pakistan remains a rather weak state despite this enormous um, attention to national security um, and uh, uh, defense for the last 66, 67 years. I think we need to understand Pakistan not just for Pakistan's sake, but the fact that this is the sixth largest country in the world. Today it is 185. It's going to be 300 million people by 2050 and it will become the fourth largest country, the biggest number of youth unemployed probably even uh, by then. Pakistan's relations and its uh, interactions with the rest of the world, especially its region, is so crucial for not only South Asian security, for global security. I was rather uh, upset by the fact that most works on Pakistan describe it. In fact, there are very few exceptions that include Ambassador's first book, and then, of course, Steve Cohen and a few others. Now we have the new books. A couple of books have come out. And then Aparna Pandey has an uh, interesting book on um, the strategic parity issue. But there are uh, very few books that explains Pakistan's predicament, why it is the way it is. So I'm trying to understand this uh, like a social scientist drawing historical uh, ideas from historical sociology, international relations, comparative politics, etc. I want to make a disclaim, I am not, like Ambassador said, here to just blame Pakistan or Pakistani military or take sides on the India-Pakistan conflict. My objective is a social science researcher. I am interested in an intellectual puzzle, and it's a paradox with considerable policy implications. And I do have a bit of experience interacting with Pakistanis, Indians, Americans, and reading for the last 30 years on this region and living and traveling quite a bit. My larger context is the European experience. <clears throat> and the European experience is interesting because I don't know how many of you have taken classes of sociology in your undergraduate days, where there is a big powerful literature <coughs> uh, headed by uh, Tilly, Charles Tilly, who made this argument that war made the state and state made war. Through a multi-stage process, European states became strong through war making, as he calls it, or preparation for war. And they eliminated their rivals, suppressed their internal enemies, extracted resources, which is a crucial point that you will notice Pakistan is missing, the extraction of ta uh, resources through taxation. And then the state made a lot of pacts with the different groups for legitimacy. And clearly all these processes took 300 to 400 years, which is actually an interesting uh, difference uh, with Pakistan. <coughs> now, one of the... Um, uh, problem with this argument, whether it is unique to Europe or it is um, uh, 
relevant to other parts of the world. There's some interesting works on Africa, some interesting work on um, Latin America, suggesting that these countries did not become strong because they didn't do the war making as, as much as the Europeans did. But I kind of take that as a foil, and then I move on to the post-World War II era and argue that war making has become a more a, a counterproductive enterprise for state capacity. A state putting all its emphasis on security, very pure military security can destroy itself. Indeed, Soviet Union, a superpower, show that. So I kind of make this argument that a capacity or state building is not purely based on coercive power of the state, but integrity power of the state. The ability of the state to draw different groups, ethnic groups especially, and to invest in its people. And if you look at this, are all some of the challenges Pakistan faces. It, its approach from day one internally in coercive state, it did not pay enough attention to integration through different mechanisms out there. The national security states that became uh, strong, in fact, some did. I will explain in a minute, Korea, Taiwan, even Indonesia, even Turkey. They became strong through adopting what you call a developmental state approach focusing simultaneously, of course, they have national security problem, simultaneously on internal development and external trade. And I think that is where we need to focus on, at least from my vantage point. And I would say that uh, Ambassador is absolutely right. If Pakistan needs to change, its military has to change, its ideology has to change, its strategy has to change. I'll conclude at the end arguing that Pakistan will not change. Civilians can do a lot of things until its core institution, which has 70% support, we just heard, uh, is its military. Even when civilians are in control, it is a hybrid system. As you can see, uh, Prime Minister Sharif is kind of boxed in today. He can't even talk about India, as far as I understand. I'm interested in this big question in this, uh, in this book. Why does Pakistan remain a weak state, despite this intense focus on national security for such a long time? Uh, time, period of time. And the other question I'm interested in, why is the elite, especially the military elite, pursued policies that have not brought long-term security or prosperity? If you run a company and you are the managing director, if you don't make profit, then you change your strategy, your company will go out of business. Unfortunately for nation states, don't go out of business. The army can still, is still needed, so they can still remain. And here the big problem is, Almost all the wars this army has fought has it failed or hasn't won, except for the first one maybe. But it hasn't changed its uh, social dynamics or power, partly because of the continuing uh, security dynamics. So I argue that there are two fundamental variables or factors, and I don't want to go too social science here. Uh, the book is not very social science. I use a lot of this literature in a very simple way for other uh, people to read peculiar geostrategic circumstances, and then I bring in the ideas that the Pakistani elite, especially the military elite, hold. Now, they, they definitely influence each other. I don't want to argue Pakistan has no security threats, or Kashmir doesn't matter, or anything of that nature, or India's behavior doesn't matter. What I'm arguing is countries facing big rivalries and territorial disputes have faced it differently. And that's where the ideas, the strategies the elite pursue is very important. I developed an idea called geostrategic curse, which may sound a little crude, but I'm drawing it from the literature on uh, foreign aid curse and resource curse. 
argue that Pakistan has been simultaneously blessed and cursed with the geostrategic importance for great powers because it is in the right place for great power conflicts and it has a willing elite to play a great power competition. Obviously, Cold War was the starting point. Pakistan derived quite a bit of support. Then the Afghan, all the history you know, the first Afghan uh, Soviet invasion that allowed Pakistan to draw a considerable amount of resources from the great power system and modern weaponry. And then post 9-11, of course, there are periods of ups and downs in that relationship. But then there are others also. This is not just the United States in this context. It is also U.S. allies, international agencies, China now, Saudi Arabia, whatnot. So what is missing is internal extraction. If you look at the East Asian states, such as Korea, Taiwan, they were able to extract money from internally. Pakistan, as you know, a kind of a semi-feudal landed aristocracy, and the military has not been, or the elite has not been able to tame that and draw the resources to modernize the country. So this literature on resource curse and foreign aid curse is what my basic argument is. It's argued that aid can really hurt a country in the long run because uh, aid can create certain institutions, certain pathologies, certain group things that will uh, prevent institutional innovation and improving the conditions of the, uh, of the, st of the, of the people. And it has a number of pathologies people are uh, affiliated with uh, in, uh, talking about. And two good examples of this phenomenon, Pakistan and Egypt. The problems are, you know, listed here. You know, obviously, it definitely can create the incentive structure for authoritarianism. It doesn't create the middle class. And then uh, the institutions are not created. That's Pakistan's big challenge, the deep, deep institutions that can uh, indeed change the way the country runs its business. No, no long-term investment in productive sectors, because whenever you are in crisis, allies or the international should bail you out. This is actually a curse for Pakistan. Uh, if you look at whatever little innovation India did in 91 was the major crisis. It only had $1 billion or something. To pay one day's uh, interest rates, and so it had to collect uh, gold from the Reserve Bank of India to London to collateral. That really is humiliating for a country of, of that nature. And Pakistan has never been allowed to go that far. Of course, we are afraid the consequences are big. Crisis is the big source of change in modern world. And I, I, we can talk about uh, later on. Pakistan's uh, clearly a big challenge is tax collection. As you know, Pakistan is one of the lowest tax collecting states in the world. Out of 100 uh, New York Times in 2010 reported, less than 2% pay any income tax and its tax it collects is a notch below Sierra Leone as a ratio of tax to gross domestic product. 10 million Pakistanis should be paying income tax, less than 2.5 million are registered. Since I published the book, I read a report by the former uh, chairman of the Pakistan uh, State Bank arguing that, in fact, it is 0.7% of the population pay any taxes. That number is decreasing. If a country is getting better, it should have a higher tax rate. And indeed, of course, it collects sales taxes and other things. Even with all that, it's less than 10% of the uh, national resources collected in taxes. You need 20 25% to pay the bills and, you know, whatever you want to do. Of course, there is substantial foreign remittance. Pakistan gets uh, big money. Pakistan received between 1960 and 2012 something like $73 billion. And I mentioned the different sources of it. And... Um, this money may not sound that big. In fact, I got criticisms on that. This is not as big as percentage of the GDP. 
but the GDP is not collected in taxes. So the governmental revenue, this is a big deal, and it is indeed, I think that is the big challenge. So I argue that the problem with Pakistan's, uh, uh, then I will, I will come into ideas, the military is, again, I don't want to, uh, uh, Ambassador is correct, the military is patriotic. You know, they're doing their job, but they're also forgetting that sometimes when you do your job, you're also hurting your country. You're playing the economic card, economic force, but not, that is where Pakistani military should read. History of Taiwan, Indonesia, Chile. I was reading uh, Allende's uh, crude man did a lot of hurt. But they all had something in common. They were development-oriented. You can look at the extent of it. Obviously, there are conditions there. And they are interested in not pure national security based on military strength or all these other paraphernalia. They are saying that if we don't trade, we will not have the sovereign capacity to defend ourselves. Now, this has not occurred to the Pakistani military, which is the, which is the big challenge. So these countries uh, adopted what you call a trading state strategy, simultaneously national security strategy. Pakistani military has not thought about it, or maybe, I don't know, they thought about it. It's not done that because of the aid that keeps coming, and it doesn't need the kind of resources. And the societal pressure for innovation or improvement is not there. So I think the problem is the Pakistani military is a key economic force, all the foundations, etc. I would be curious to know its impact on the landed aristocracy, how it is related. I haven't come across any good work other than the earlier works on Hamza Alavi and others. You need a kind of Marxist interpretative thinking. The relationship between Pakistani military and its landed aristocracy. So... But I think this, this strategic uh, situation is not sufficient to understand Pakistan. Where is the idea of Pakistan in terms of the military strategies come from? And we know that the ideas that the elite hold, and we talk about group thing, but there's some set of preconceived ideas. And this is very crucial, and I think a book is badly needed. I know there's a book by Steve Cohen called The Idea of Pakistan. In fact, I'm drawing quite a bit in Ambassador's work too. But we need a really need to, I think Akhil Shah does that quite a bit, but still deeply understanding where is this idea of uh, security comes from. I argue there is a kind of a realist Hobbesian worldview, strong national security state, self-help, national security, territorial security takes priority to everything else. Security is narrow and it's not comprehensive. Trade and economic welfare secondary if only it helps the state. Extreme conflict is the nature of interstate politics, and the state is challenged by predatory adversaries. If they are not really uh, deterred, they will destroy Pakistan. So Cohen talks about the small decision-making unit of 500 elite and their operational code, and some of the things were already discussed in that uh, quotations you heard. And um, these are some of the interesting things I could pick up that they are, they are not interested in deep-rooted social or economic reforms, including illiteracy. By the way, the Korean army wanted universal literacy, uh, which is missing. And then you have control over the media. Then a lot of these ideas come from British colonial world. In fact, the whole of South Asia, another book needs to be written, how much the colonialists influenced borders, strategic depth, buffer states, not conceding an inch to anybody. You know, the Indians have a big problem, too. Not developing their northeast because the Chinese tanks will then roll over to India. Now they are really uh, struggling with that. But in Pakistan's case, 
there is another set of ideas coming out of Quranic concept of war, something politically incorrect, but unfortunately or fortunately, that is what is influencing the way of thinking. Islamic warriors won from a tiny part of the um, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the Arabian Peninsula and conquered a lot of territories, changed the against very powerful enemies. In fact, they were able to win through asymmetric strategies and different strategies. This shows that Pakistan needs to be steadfast, and it may take a thousand years, but the powerful state will one day concede. Now, I'm not going that far to say that it is purely that part, but there is a tactical and strategic element in that thinking, and it is needed to be understood. One deep-rooted issue I want to talk about is the India challenge and the need for parity. And I think this is something uh, has been written. Um, this is the power differential. By the way, India's Uttar Pradesh carry more people than Pakistan. Probably don't realize many of them. But. And so the power differential, the material differential is one to seven. Before Bangladesh separated, it was one to four. This is extremely hard to catch up. And this is part of the challenge. I'll tell you what it is. This uh, desire for, in fact, um, um, Aparna's book talks a lot about these quotations about parity. Parity is achievable, and even though it may cost considerably to the uh, society, parity is a desirable objective. And you can achieve that through uh, symmetric strategies, alliance relationship, and, of course, nuclear weapons today in today's world. Uh, further, religious and ideological strengths add to Pakistan's balancing effort. I want to look into this concept of parity not as a military concept. It is civilizational parity that the elite is seeking. And that is why, and it's a status parity, by the way, that is why this rivalry is not going to end anytime soon, sir. I'm sorry. Because it is not achievable the way unless India disintegrates. And you may not agree with me, but I would tell you that this is a big problem, even if Kashmir is sold tomorrow, which is unlikely, that the problem of parity is going to stay on, unless, of course, the ideas that drive, derive, uh, drive the Pakistani elite, the military, change. And so I think it has to go back to South Asian history, the demand for a separate Muslim ho uh, homeland, and the desire of a successor state to the Mughal rule. Um, and that is the thing that we need to really understand. A Pakistan, um, um, of course, the desire for Pakistan was also the fact that after 1857, the Muslim uh, lords and especially the, the uh, elite were downgraded by the British. And of course, they were the fighters for the independence, uh, major uh, warriors. And that really hurt the Muslim uh, minority. And so partition was an effort to achieve, reclaim that, uh, what you call that role. And I think uh, that needs to be understood that why this is uh, continuing. It's, it's not simply uh, for uh, uh, what you call a territorial uh, alone. And the military's goal here is to achieve the status competition. It was able to do a lot during the Cold War because the alliance with the United States gave it that status. It, uh, the Western countries treated equal um, India-Pakistan hyphenated. Now that is changing. And that is going to be the big challenge. Unless Pakistan becomes an economic force, it can, by the way, by a model economy, challenge this, uh, this uh, Indian dominance. But otherwise, but it's stuck in the military competitive <coughs> dynamics. So a relatively weaker Pakistan has to spend considerable energy to maintain this parity. 
And because it is not able to achieve these long-term goals, so much frustration, the military and whoever is worked into that. I think, I think the literature of social identity theory will be very useful and the desire for co-equality coming out of the historical uh, processes in South Asia. And so this conflict will continue, unfortunately, because the Indian economy is growing and the Indians are also doing a lot of other things in the world system that gives them a lot more status than Pakistan today. Now, many of these ideas are obviously uh, historically changed. And uh, this is my little map on the Mughal Empire. Look how big it was at the end of Aurangzeb's period. Whole notion of region changes the moment you look at it. And the British India, by the way, went all the way to Burma, then to Singapore. So it's uh, another notion of what. Uh, so these are, see, these are the problems I identify. I, people can differ uh, with me. This is why the dominant status of the military, this rivalry is unending. You need two forces to change such dynamics. One is an internationally oriented middle class or business class, or some people say labor class, because there's a debate in that, you know, you're familiar with the work of Barrington Moore, no bourgeois, no democracy, but now people say it's actually not the bourgeoisie alone. It is also the working class. You don't have that civil society, although it's tiny but very powerful. I mean, I'm reading Pakistani newspapers. Uh, it's quite, uh, it reminds you, by the way, a lot of uh, uh, powerful uh, people are working very hard. Or revolutionary change can come from outside, and which is where the United States miserably failed. Now, the problem with the U.S., you, you, the U.S. approach to it, Korea and Taiwan in the 1960s and 1970s, where USA demanded structural change economic integration with world market. In Pakistan's case, the IMF and the World Bank occasionally made demands. And Ambassador's second book really talks about how Pakistan negotiates uh, this milieu. And obviously, China and Saudi Arabia are not going to <laughs> demand any major political changes. And I think uh, the key here is to understand that the external actors are facilitators, unfortunately, because they really have a a lot of stake in this country, and the Pakistani elite, the diplomatic corps, has been extremely uh, smart in getting what they want. In the, in the tactical sense, the long run, it's hurting. You want me to conclude in the two, three minutes? Yeah, yeah. five minutes, yeah. Um, I compare with um, South Korea and Taiwan. In fact, uh, anybody who's interested to understand, countries face this challenge, uh, faced in a different manner. And both these countries, obviously, there are differences with respect to the starting point, et cetera. But you must remember that Korea's per capita income uh, was $79, poorer than Pakistan in 1960. In fact, they came to Karachi to figure out how to run a city. Imagine Seoul and <laughs> Karachi today. So then I, I tell you, this is clearly the, the idea that adopted was export or die. If you don't export, you will die. That was the idea. <coughs> Turkey, another interesting case I talk about the semi-partial development state agenda that the Turkish uh, elite adopted. But I think the most interesting case is Indonesia, which I think sh Indonesia shows that, in fact, every Pakistani elite, a military leader, should read Indonesian history and try to figure out what did they do, Suharto in particular. A military guy, but corrupt and, you know, all the, all the pathologies of developing countries. But they sustained growth, oil helped. Something about the trading state approach and putting money into education, 7% of GDP. South Asian countries, 2%. Pakistan and India, by the way. India put 1% into IITs. 
1% into general education, Pakistan 2%, no IITs as far as I know, and as a result, you see where they are today. And there's a wonderful book by Myron Wiener called The, uh, the Child and the State in India that tell you a lot about it. Let me conclude by arguing that the argument people make at time, uh, European states took 400 years, Pakistan only 67 years, it needs more time. No, time is no guarantee countries change unless you do the right uh, policies. Pakistan has to become a trading state or a developmental state if it has any chance to, uh, to help its young. It has to globalize in the right way to help its youth. It is globalized in the wrong way. And that is where the military comes into the play. It has missed out the benefits of globalization. Of course, globalization has a lot of negatives, especially with respect to international trade, investment, mobility, workforce, etc. None of the crises Pakistan faced has been strong enough to move that society into a different pathway. 1971 should have been, but that has not. So I'm arguing that Pakistani elite and the expatriate community need a rethinking. Why, what does this state stand for? How can you achieve security and development? You cannot wait for all your territorial disputes with India and Afghanistan. That's a big refrain, by the way. The concessions have to come from them. They're not going to do that, as we know. I argue that they can do both simultaneously. Geopolitical victories are not going to transform Pakistan. As we know, historically, that has not happened. Indeed, we need to think about peaceful social revolution. These words may sound rather a peaceful social revolution in ideas, in the mentalities, and the strategies of the military. I want to emphasize, agree with the ambassador. That's the key geopolitical player that can transform Pakistan. Nobody else can say this country because they got to start it. And if you look at all the cases I mentioned, the military started the transformation. So I will just uh, stop there by arguing that uh, Pakistan has great opportunities. Time has not passed yet. It just needs to do the right things and not to wait for everybody else to make the moves or right concessions for the neighbors to give away territory they claim each other anyway. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Thank you very much, uh, TV, for that uh, very uh, lucid presentation. Um, I just have a very minor bone to pick with you. You said that the Pakistani military uh, may not uh, uh, want, uh, the Korean military did, but the Pakistani military may not want uh, universal literacy. Actually, I think they do. Mm. It's just that they don't know how to get there. Mm. And in the Korean case, for example, the Korean civilian uh, technocratic as well as political elite and the military worked together. And they were able to overcome the suspicion that may have been there in the early phases about the civilian elite. Whereas in Pakistan, we haven't been able to do that. There remains a major sort of, uh, um, uh, shall we say, divide between those who have a slightly different worldview. The, the, the army or the military generally has sought conformity with its worldview before it can use your uh, ability in a particular field. So, so for example... Akhtar Amit Khan mm. and people like that who had different ideas of how to promote literacy in Pakistan. Uh, their models were taken by other countries and worked very well. But in Pakistan, they were looked upon with suspicion because the overall social and political uh, view that they had was not necessarily completely in conformity uh, with, the, uh, with the military's worldview. So I think that is the one area where mm. I would like us to, I would like you to rethink that the military does actually want economic progress. It does want, but it doesn't know who its allies ought to be because those things can only be done by civilians. I mean, the military cannot uh, bring universal literacy. Universal literacy has to be brought by educators. 
the economic management has to be done by, uh, uh, by, by people with knowledge of economics. And this major civil-military equation in Pakistan in which the military generally tends to look upon civilians with a different worldview, with suspicion, is a major issue mm. which needs to be resolved by the Pakistanis over a period of time if they can. Um, because uh, uh, if, if, if the only allies you can trust are people like those uh, people who are in the Pakistan Defense Council, you know, uh, the Maulanas, the, the various religious leaders, etc. If they are the only ones you think have the same worldview as you on national security, then the so-called uh, sort of uh, more progressive, more liberal, more uh, uh, worldly uh, people will not be able to contribute to the state. So that's, that's one comment I had. Uh, we are open for questions and comments. I would request that first we get out the questions out of the way. A question is something with a question mark at the end. Usually, usually is short. And then we will give time to those who want to make comments because, you know, comments always take longer and sometimes can go on forever. Uh, I will let you ask the first question, Alan. Please introduce, though. Yeah. And introduce yourself, please, quick, in, in, in uh, a short time. My name is Arnold Zeitlin, and I've a long interest in uh, Pakistan since I opened the first Associated Press Bureau there in 1969. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, both the Indian and Pakistani armies uh, came from the colonial tradition in India, but they've gone in different directions. Why is that? And a second question, uh, I've heard nothing about the Pakistani army's vested interest as a result of uh, how its uh, uh, business interests have become, and social interests, have become part of the fabric in Pakistan, uh, so that the uh, business uh, uh, community in Pakistan actually seems to have used the military as an instrument maintaining its position. I will give one shot. I'm sure Ambassador can also help me here because he knows more about Pakistan. Depends than on whether I want to help TV. <laughs> Go on. But I deal with both these topics in the book, so I couldn't cover all that subject. The first one is why the colonial army, the, the sword arm of the Raj was the Punjabi army. You know, basically 67% came from Punjab. But why it became different? Obviously, the way the state came to formation, and then obviously Pakistan needed the army. It was not given what it was supposedly, all the numbers, etc. But from day one, it was a vice regal system. I mean, Jinnah, despite all his greatness, was also interested in creating that sort of bureaucratic system. And I think the difference is Jawaharlal Nehru's approach to civil-military relations. Whether we like it or not, he contributed tremendously to India's keeping the army under the control of the civilians. One of the crucial things they did was that the army cannot intervene in politics. The three chiefs cannot even meet without a cabinet minister present, and that they won't even be consulted. And it, it affected India many times in wars. But that, I think, was ingrained in the army. You are not going to participate in politics. And even when, you know, the powerful army chiefs or leaders like Meneksha or Chowdhury, you know, all, the, all of them come up with all kinds of ideas, but rarely sp speak in political terms. Now, that was a leadership choice. Pakistan, unfortunately, did not have that political leadership after Jinnah's death, as you know. 
he didn't have that successive uh, Muslim League, did not create the political elite of Nehru's stature or, or Maulana Azad's stature or whatever you want to talk about. So it is the uh, ingrained constitutional structure, you know, structure that was created that gave this importance to military bureaucratic elite from day one. And of course they took over and the most powerful force was that Ayub Khan spirit onwards. The second question is why is this vested interest? That is actually where the ambassador uh, perhaps uh, we need to look at uh, the difference between the Korean army, the Indonesian army. What did they do? They don't necessarily, the Taiwanese army, they don't necessarily, even the Chilean army, have this kind of, as far as I know, foundations. You know, they run these things, they get into the boats. It's a predatory in some sense. You extract as much as you can, but not to do the right things to liberalize, to trade, and uh, where, actually, I should differ a little bit with the ambassador's point about the role of bureaucracy in, in the Korean development. There's an interesting book by Atul Kohli on development. And it was indeed the bureaucracy that brought a lot of uh, ideas and encouraged in the military to act upon it. In this case, South Asian case, the bureaucracy is not good for development. I'm sorry to say, none of the South Asian countries, maybe barring Sri Lanka a little bit, you find the bureaucracy an agent of development in the way you see in East Asia. The passion for development is missing. So I think the military's vested interest became also land ownership, and the, the land grants are given after serving in the military, which is actually a major bad thing for any military, I'm telling you, because this is the comparison is Wilhelma in Germany. When the militaries are given land. They don't have an incentive to change things. They're very happy, cushy life if you are the military chiefs or certain tiers of the Pakistani army, armed forces. And I think that's another difference with India. You find the military retirement, uh, they don't get many of these privileges. In fact, you visit some of them. Some of them do have cantonments, and, but not the big land areas, acres of land, etc. I think. So the military, again, I want to emphasize that, has this connection to the landed aristocracy and then the industrial houses, whatever little houses they have. They need to break that or come up with new strategies to make this country a trading power. Ayub Khan did a little bit, by the way, in initially in the 60s. But then uh, it collapsed, and you have all kinds of... Uh, I'll stop there. TV, TV, I'll make two comments on the, in response to Arnold's question. On the first one, I mean, they're very... It's, it's, it's a subject needs greater examination. Uh, India immediately had a native, to use a British expression, a native army chief within a year. They did not keep the British or the English. In case of Pakistan, for four years, it has had English commanders. Uh, so the viceregal mindset continued to actually permeate the Pakistani military in its formative, formative years. The head of the ISI, which was formed in 1948, the longest-serving head of the ISI was a, Austra a British officer of Australian origin, you know, Major General Cawthorn, who served for like 10 years is still the longest serving. So what they did was, even though the country had become independent, they did not embrace the, 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 the philosophy of independence in the same way, of respect for political leadership, of respect for those who had fought for national independence, etc. Ayub Khan was the first one in 1951. And the moment he became army chief, he gets on a plane and comes to Washington without permission from either the governor general or the prime minister. If you read my first book, Pakistan Between Mosque and Military, I have detailed discussion of that, that both of them, the governor general and the, fire, the prime minister, don't know that the army chief is coming here to make a promise to the 
American military at that time in 1951 that my army, he's saying it as if it's his army, like he says, uh, the words he used according to um, uh, Henry Byrow to whom he said it, my army will become your army if you only pay the right price. Now that mindset could not have been that of a Pakistani nationalist. It was just that of a functionary who's trying to figure out how to pay for his institution. And so that kind of permeated, although he did do many good things, but he kind of also spoiled or shall we say muddied the water from the beginning. So the civil-military relationship could never be as stable as it was in India. And, 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 and then there was the ideological factor. Slowly, slowly, especially with Yahya Khan onwards and Ziaul Haq really uh, made it m major, the ideological dimension of, of, of uh, inculcation instead of just pure professionalism. One quick comment on this military business interest business. I mean, I'm sure that there are people who are interested in But look, to be fair, I have never met a young Pakistani military officer who joins the military because of the perks and the privileges he's going to get. He gets them, but I think that people still join the military because it's an institution uh, where some, some do it out of patriotic motivation, some do it out of professional motivation. So very frankly, it is an institution that can change. I know that Dr. Aisha Siddiqui and others have made this argument that it's all about that. Maybe, maybe, once they are in a senior position, they start thinking about the perks, and, they, and nobody turns down perks that they receive. But I don't think that is the operational motivation of the military. The operational motivation of the Pakistani military remains a very particularistic nationalism, which needs to be debated a little bit more than it is within the military and outside the military in Pakistan. But I would add that it, even though they may not think about it, but it is part of the problem yes, by structural reforms. It becomes, it becomes part happened. of the structural problem. Fully agreed. Next question. I have one more quick. I yeah. think the Americans also need some blame here. The American administrations did not want to deal with the civilians. Ayub Khan was the choice figure. <laughs> he comes well, to Washington. Yeah, there's a problem in Washington generally in dealing with other countries. Basically, it's the it's the approach that you see in science fiction men, uh, movies, you know, take me to your leader. I mean, you know, you, you, you've come with come, come into an alien land and you want somebody who will deliver everything. And that that continues. They still look for the guy. I mean, the first question I was asked as ambassador, I came to present my credentials. And the first question I was asked uh, in May 2008, if you remember, it was Pakistan was going through transition. Musharraf was still president. Uh, Yusuf Raza Gilani had been elected prime minister. Parliament had come in. And the, my American interlocutor's his first question was, so who is in charge? And to tell him, hey, there are multiple centers of power. It's a democracy in evolution, et cetera, et cetera, which is easy to explain in a classroom. Try explaining that to the State Department. They still want, they still want, show me your leader, with whom I can cut a bargain and who will do everything and deliver everything. And they've done this repeatedly. They did it with Ayub Khan. They did it with Yahya Khan. Uh, they did it with Musharraf. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a wrong assumption. No individual can turn around an entire nation like that, uh, however great he might be. And you need to understand the dynamics, the political dynamics, the ethnic dynamics, and the social dynamics. It's not always easy. And so why you use the word, uh, word blame for Americans? I don't blame the Americans. The, I just say it's one of those, Things. shall we say, structural flaws. I mean, in a, in, in a nation that does not have many, you know, people don't speak many languages, don't always understand the culture. It's much easier for them to talk to somebody like me who speaks English, albeit with an accent, uh, than to, to, to try and understand Pakistan's politics through people uh, who don't always express themselves well in English, etc. So they're always looking for that leader. And in that case, 
the army was the easier way mm. rather than the civilians Most in a country in a country where there are where, where, where there are coalition politics especially if you go back to the 50s i mean we were changing prime ministers frequently uh, the 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 coalition politics was complex it wasn't easy you couldn't you couldn't have americans of the 1950s even remotely understand that and then when ayub khan appeared tall guy you know speaking with a clipped accent i mean there's a memo from uh, there's, there's a comment from henry kissinger in my book uh, where he talks about general yaya khan and says he's although yaya khan never went to sandhurst kissinger assumed he had been to sandhurst and he said he speaks with that clipped sandhurst accent so he is our man you know i mean which which is naivety at its best um so next question yes been the most successful american president as far as relations with pakistan and india collectively and who's been the least successful and what type of president would you like to see come in <laughs> next time around oh gosh i, I don't think that's a question either one of us wants to take as far as the least popular is concerned that's relatively easier to to answer the the american public's current opinion uh, and the view of people in south asia is more or less identical on this one of of who's 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 been least successful uh in the past i mean it's been, it's 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 been up and down uh but uh, uh i think the indian and the pakistani views on this would be very very different i would add eisenhower and dulles probably were most sympathetic to pakistan i eisenhower dulles and then subsequently nixon, nixon, nixon. was very very uh, you know they were sympathetic to pakistan i think in terms of the of india uh, uh john f kennedy and george w bush would be the ones that would rate high in india and clinton too uh, and clinton also i think clinton also okay next question yes sir in my experience contact with many people from pakistan as well and introduce please introduce yourself sir i get the following uh, impression they do not support the warrior state they're tired of military rule they don't feel threatened by india it parallels really the situation in iran in my contact with young iranians they're fed up with autocratic rule it's a large cadre of young people who are not anti western and who really want true democracy uh i wonder what your response uh, in the context yeah, of what's going on in pakistan yeah. would be to that Uh, my 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 comment on that would be very simple depends on uh, what segment of pakistani society you are in contact with uh pakistan is a complex country 200 million people um so if if you are only talking to young pakistanis who are able to come here they 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 are at a certain level of education they are at a certain level of uh, persp- uh, they they have a certain perspective uh, they are a little more worldly wise to be able to get on a plane and come here and 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 to get a visa uh not many do as i pointed out only 4000 pakistanis are currently in american universities doing undergrad degrees which is less than the number of nepalese who are in american universities i think yes it is true that a lot of young pakistanis do agree with what i would call my world view which is no permanent conflict get on with the business of productivity become a development state educate your population etc but then there are a lot of people who still embrace the hard line uh uh what can uh, for want of a better expression can be described as a hyper nationalism which basically defines pakistan not through its own accomplishments but through the prism of who its enemies might be 
and 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 that is also a pretty common. So it's a struggle. It's a struggle. It's not. Iran is slightly different. The mullahs have ruled for far too long. People have become disenchanted. You know. Uh, so 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 there it might be that there is a critical mass, much much larger than it is in Pakistan. But there are young people in this audience. I can see young Pakistanis who would who were smiling when you were talking because you were talking about them. <laughs> but the truth is, it would be wrong of us to assume that they represent the wide majority in Pakistan. That's my two cents worth. Yes, Mariam? My, my Introduce yourself first. Please. My name is Mariam Arif. I'm uh, an attorney in New York, um, but I'm from Pakistan. I've spent a lot of time there. And it seems to me um, like we're skirting around the issue of actually placing the blame where it belongs. Um, and I'll sort of try and, it's, it's really a comment, but I'm going to try and sort of phrase it like a question. Um, so, um, I, I think that we're suggesting here that it's inadvertent on the part of the Pakistan, uh, Pakistani military mm -hmm. that they just happen to ignore the chances for economic development. My question is this. Do you think the Pakistani military is genuinely interested in improving um, economic ties through trade, for example, with India, when one of the big reasons... Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the big justifications for the huge Pakistani military budget comes from, from the fact that we have this big uh, enemy, you know, in the in the uh, in the shape and form of India. TV. I think whatever I can understand, the biggest stumbling block today to have a free trade or the the most favored nation equivalent status with India is the military, as far as I know. I think civilians badly want it. So I think the 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 problem there is. Um, even though the military initially supported, occasionally they do support this idea of opening up a trade. But this idea that until you solve all the territorial issues and Kashmir is resolved, if you don't trade with India, you know, it's a non-starter. You know, you know, India and China can trade. They have a big territorial dispute. But why not India and Pakistan? I think it goes into the national security state idiom. It's a very powerful national security idiom. Adversarial nationalism is the most powerful word, and I would also respond to the youth question that was raised here. Whatever I have read, it's a very mixed bag in the post-Zia world of educated education that has changed a lot of mindsets. And one source that may not be accurate is to read Pakistani blogs and newspapers, uh, comments that our people make, youngsters in particular. Unfortunately, some of them are very driven by conspiracy theories, all kinds of, you know, very confused, uh, mangled way of looking at it. That comes from India, too, by the way. I don't think it is the youth is that different on clarity of thinking. I don't know whether this idea that somehow the military is the only force there against it. My sense is that the military is the big block right now. Uh, if there is an opening up that can be made and starting point. This is where the Taiwanese example comes into the play. The Taiwanese uh, really have a sunshine policy, and they opened up for trade. That has done wonders for their relations with China. Uh, with China. Uh, doesn't mean that China is eventually not going to take over Taiwan. That's another big issue. But the point is that the military is time for the Pakistani military to try another approach with, with India. Coercion has not worked, unlikely to work, with Modi in charge right now and anybody in charge. Because Indians cannot concede without some kind of something to show, you know, in terms of future course. So I think trade should come first and perhaps... Along with that, security issues can be slowly handled differently. But the Pakistani military's approach is very much settle disputes first and then go. But just to be fair, 
it's not just the Pakistani military's approach. There is a strong segment of Pakistani civilian opinion also, which has what I call an ideological perspective. They have an ideological perspective on India. They haven't gotten over the bitterness that was at the root of what led to partition and then the circumstances of partition. And I experience this on an almost daily basis. There are people who say, you're... My argument is I was born way after creation of Pakistan. I am a Pakistani by birth, just as you are. I don't need a raison d'etre of what happened and why. I mean, I'm prepared to study it as a historic question. I want to move on about what will be good for my country, and I want to have a discussion about it, and I want to listen to those who say, and we want to, I mean, economics is a function of numbers, so if we will benefit from trade, we should do it. If we won't benefit from it, don't do it. But don't get stuck up on it as an ideological compulsion. But let's be very honest. The ideology of Pakistan is very much a civilian belief as well. I mean, those who stand up with uh, Imran Khan or the jamaat islami or the jamaat dawa or the Muslim League, a, a seg significant segment of the Muslim League, or uh, uh, they have the Nawai Waqt newspaper, which has always opposed, like as far as they are concerned, Pakistanis who watch Bollywood movies are engaging in uh, 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 treacherous conduct. I mean, if you read their editorial. So they, so, 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 and the fact that the newspaper is still the second largest newspaper in Punjab obviously means that people who read with it, read it, read it because of this particular problem. So just to blame the military on this, in my opinion, is a tad unfair. Mm. The military also has that perspective. Uh, but there are individuals in the military. I mean, it's interesting that the paper that the current, uh, the new DG of the ISI wrote while he was at the Army War College uh, advocated good relations with India. So so, so, so it's, it's a function of society as much as of the military. It shouldn't be just, just made into a function of the military alone. That said, if the military encouraged more honest discussion and said, you know what, if somebody has criticized us as an institution or our institutional conduct, etc., etc., does not automatically, if somebody advocates good relations with India or America or, or even Israel is not necessarily, a, let, let us hear the argument on its merit, then maybe we will be able to have a slightly more open debate. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen in Pakistan. Yes, sir. All the people in the back also. Yes, yes, I'm taking all the people. We've got quite a, you know, you and I didn't talk that much. <laughs> uh, thank you. I'm David Benwitz, and I had a question about Modern education and globalization tend to lead to secularism. And I'm wondering about the influence of Islamic philosophy and specifically Islamic leadership to try to prevent modernization in order to avoid secularism. Well, let me take, you yes, want me please. to take it? No, okay. No. Look, I mean, in Pakistan, unfortunately, because Pakistan was declared to be an Islamic state very early on, 1949, since then, Mr. Jinnah's uh, uh, speech of 11th of August of 1947 in which he spoke of a secular Pakistan has actually been like it wasn't, it's not even officially acknowledged that he made that speech. You know, it was kind of uh, airbrushed out of history and there are people, there, was an, uh, th there are scholars who say, yeah, yeah, he made it because he was old and tired, which is a very, very sad way to talk about the founder of your country because the ideology is so important. Uh, so the curriculum is pretty bad. I mean, I often cite the example of the Punjab University vice chancellor who's written a book saying 9-11 is a conspiracy against the Islamic world and the Americans did it to be able to justify. So, and, and he's a physicist and he's a PhD. 
and he did his PhD from Edinburgh University. So it's not like somebody who's like totally without knowledge of the world. Then there was the famous head of the Pakistani Atomic Energy Commission at one point, uh, or not uh, deputy head, uh, uh, Bashir Mahmood, who wrote that, you know, because the Quran mentions genies and the genies must really exist. Therefore, the best way to solve the world's energy problem, I mean, this is a f physics PhD. Uh, these are physics PhDs who say, the best way to solve the energy problem of the world is to figure out a way to communicate with these genies so they can come and solve our energy problem. And he insisted that this is a scientific paper. It should be published as a scientific paper. Those kind of things are one of the problems. Uh, so even the most educated get all confused about all of this. I think Pakistanis should be open to a discussion of the secular ideas uh, and, and should not consider secularism a dirty word, but we are not there yet. Some questions from the back, right there at the back, Mr. Fratkin, sir. Hello, Fratkin of the uh, Hudson Institute, and thank you, uh, Hussein, and thank you, uh, Dr. Paul. I, the question I wanted to ask was uh, pertains to this comparison of militaries. Dr. Paul suggested a, a very interesting notion, which is that the tradition of the Pakistani army thinks to some degree looks back to the Mughal period. And I was wondering whether Ambassador Haqqani thinks that uh, forms part of the consciousness of, of the uh, Pakistani military. Successor state to the Mughal Empire. I think it's not just the military again. I think there are Pakistani scholars, Pakistani uh, sort of ideologues who have made that argument. They've made the argument. In fact, uh, in the lead up to the creation of Pakistan, Mr. Jinnah himself argued that the reason why you had to create Pakistan was because, because of Mughal rule, the Hindus of India uh, thought very differently because they were con uh, ruled by Muslims who were uh, different. And so therefore, we are different nations. We are, we are different people. And that has permeated thinking. But does the Pakistani military on a day-to-day -day basis sort of, uh, you know, does... Does a Pakistani general wake up and think, you know, so w what would the Mughal general be doing if he was in my place? No, I don't think so. But, but yes, the idea that Pakistan represents the continuity of Mughals and other sultans of South Asia who were Muslim uh, and were not uh, 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 Hindus, uh, that Pakistan represents that mind is very much there and uh, among a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the warrior, look, I have, you know, when I, whenever I have served in government, I have always fought over little things like you're naming a building. Please name it after a scholar. For example, Karachi is the only city in Pakistan that has a road named after Ghazali. There is no road after Averos, or Ibn Rushd. But there are roads named after Tariq bin Ziyad and Khalid bin Walid. Every warrior you can think of. Anywhere in the Muslim world, there's a Abdul Hamid bin Bades road in, uh, in Lahore. So as a young kid, I always wondered who the heck Abdul Hamid bin Bades was. Apparently, he was an Algerian Muslim warrior. So there is this thing about, I call it the cult of the warrior. So, so somehow the warrior is more important than the scholar uh, or the businessman or the trader. I mean, Prophet Muhammad himself was a trade, trader. And he, he, there is a famous hadith that, that three out of four uh, ways for people to, uh, to earn a living that God has created in the world, they come from trading, but that has never been publicized. We are always told about the warriors and respect for the warriors. If I may add, I think there's a book by Farsana Sheikh on 
a little bit on the subject, bringing all the quotations on Mughals, etc. But I bring it in that the deep cause for this rivalry, a sort of civilizational status, and it is that's where I would bring in a lot more than day-to-day -day affairs. Yeah. I think it has to be thought as why it's difficult for Pakistan or even general Pakistanis to accept any kind of Indian hegemony is not purely because of the size factor. It is because of this understanding that we are a successor to the Mughal Empire, and there they are. And all these notions about Hinduism and all that is a different thing. But I think we have to look at that as a deep-rooted cause for the persistence of this rivalry. That's what I would say. And, and, and Muslims of India... Uh, and, and, and their thinking, and, the, and especially those Muslim leaders who did not agree with the creation of Pakistan, whose point of view is very relevant. What were their arguments? I mean, in a historic context, we must study that. But we are not allowed or encouraged to do that. They were all considered, and that created a big problem. That also creates problems for people like me, because like, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to Pakistan, but I have a different worldview as a Pakistani. And that tradition that, no, 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 this has to be the warrior state, successor to the Mughals, etc., etc., no questioning. And then the fact that almost 40% of the Muslims of the subcontinent, even in the election of 1946, did not vote for Pakistan. That's a very large number. And, 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 and so their point of view should be part of the curriculum and the studying and the education. Giants like Abul Kalam Azad, who... who, who, who who anticipated many things about Pakistan while disagreeing with Mr. Jinnah. He should be studied. I mean, of course, there's no turning back. Pakistan is there. It has to stay. It has to be protected. It has to be made functional. But Pakistanis should be open to understanding all of that, but not understanding that and having a simplistic narrative. There were the Mughals, then the British took power away from us. Now we've come back, and therefore we are kind of keeping that tradition. It's an oversimplification of history which appeals to a lot of people and is very much there. I would add one more point that's also a wrong history because that's a North Indian history. Yeah. If you look at how Islam spread to South India, then from there to Indonesia and place through traders. I come from a place where the, the, the religions came not through conquerors, through through imams who came and tried to teach them. You and know, TV, I mean, the oldest mosque is in Kerala. Yeah, well, uh, the oldest where mosque in the, the Hindu ruler in was Kerala. Hindu ruler was converted without any force. He yeah. genuinely converted, and so, he was the instigator of that. Yeah. So in and Pakistan, so it shows yeah. that the, 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 the teaching of Pakistani curriculum of Islam is actually hurting Pakistan, not showing that there is a trader angle to this whole subcontinental Islam. Trader, scholar, Sufi. Sufi it's yes. all about the warriors, you know. Islam came to the subcontinent through Muhammad bin Qasim the warrior in 712 AD. You've been very patient with your hand up right at the back. And then we'll send you the bill uh, from my, uh, from my shoulder. Uh, oh, you don't have to do that. I always notice you. And then I always let you ask the question. You don't have to well, keep it Well, I'm only 6'8", so I can understand how you'd overlook me. Um, thank you for the form uh, thoroughly. To the extent that uh, politicians really matter in, uh, in Pakistan, uh, could, you, um, could you take a survey of the relations between Mr. Modi and his, uh, his opposite number in Pakistan, uh, Mr. Paul, and... Um, and, uh, and the relationship between Mr. Modi and the head of the ISI, uh, for that matter. And also, um, you'd appreciate this, uh, Mr. Ambassador, the very incomparable Dr. Fair, Christine Fair, sat pretty much where you are, Mr. Paul, and noted in her uh, inimitable way that uh, the relationship between the United States and Pakistan has been probably at best uh, strife-ridden. So how do you find relations between this nation and Pakistan? Thank you. You mean contemporary relations? Generally, I think it's a it's a big big brush question. Well, maybe it was specifically Milton Mill relations. 
Yeah, military to military relations. Which again, you are better to answer. My understanding is it's ups and downs, no? It's not necessarily linear. Well, I think the military to military relationship has always been relatively stronger than the overall relationship. Uh, the U.S. military makes much more of an effort to uh, uh, maintain channels of communication with the U.S., uh, mil uh, with the Pakistani military than the uh, political side is able to keep with the political and, and, and that has to do with Pakistan's there's greater continuity in the military to military relationship uh, whereas central command and Pacific central command, command uh, is able to keep in touch etc officers come to train the officers who come to train become friends on the civilian side it's a lot more erratic and then every now and then there's a civilian leader who when they're out of power they tell washington dc that they want nothing but good relations with america but when they're in power they're also demonstrating against the americans or burning american flags or encouraging that because of political constituency management there are very few who have the guts to kind of stand up and say you know what we need this relationship and therefore there are many interesting exchanges between civilian leaders and and americans in my in my book magnificent delusions there's this whole episode about um, a certain leader who was elected uh, because of his entire, partly because of his anti-American rhetoric, and he comes and tells Richard Nixon that, by the way, that was to get the votes. The real policy is going to be, I'm going to be your best friend in the region, so please treat me differently. So that doesn't enable the kind of stability in relationship that we have at the mill to mill level. Uh, for example, when General Sharif comes here, he will definitely be met with tremendous respect and uh, uh, and with great positivity by his American counterparts. And the American counterparts uh, will uh, think that if they get a commitment from the general on some functional professional thing, he will be able to, he will be able to fulfill it. The civilians are not always able to fulfill the promises they make, which creates a lot of problems in the relationship. I think the two books that will help you to understand the deeper relationship is the Schaefer's book on um, you, how Pakistan negotiates with the U.S., and then, of course, ambassadors, magnificent delusions. They suggest, you know, that the expectations are not the same, even at the popular level. And that is part of the challenge in this relationship. Uh, that is because, that's again the geostrategic curse. Aid recipient is never given the respect as a trade partner. The Pakistani elite, as well as the public, don't understand that when you get money, you are not an equal. The Americans looked up, down upon, although they may not say it, but the point is that if they become a trading partner, they get a lot more respect. I think that is a fundamental source of this conflict relationship. And I would say that this is a transactional relationship. We should move into a proper economic trade-centered relationship. Uh, last question, last two questions, Marvin and the uh, uh, here. Both these questions. Why don't you go ahead? Okay. Sorry about that. We couldn't take everybody's questions, I think. Uh, but it's been a very good session. Well, Go thank you very much for taking mine. Patricia Fagan, Georgetown oh, University. Sorry, Patricia, you know for not recognizing you. For giving me a chance. The, um, you both, in both talks, you mentioned, you, you laid emphasis on the relationship with India, and, and, uh, and neither of you has said any, anything about Afghanistan. Now, obviously, the Afghan border is a flashpoint, and, and it's such a flashpoint is so often written about that I'm not even going to ask about that. But I would like to ask about the large population of Afghans still in Pakistan and the, as some Pakistanis would think, outsized population of Afghans and the continual 
across the we in the U.S. are accompanied by having our, our accompanied to having a, a border that's not entirely secure, and Pakistan doesn't have one that's entirely secure with Afghan Afghanistan either. So, is this something the military is concerned about? Or you could sometimes it definitely that? is, but but here's the problem. The Sorry. problem is. Well, it's, it's partly strategic, but it's also uh, there's a f very deep-rooted issue here, which is that the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, by definition, has to be a relatively open border, because it, that border divides tribes that have inter uh, 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 with relationships with one another, and uh, and so sealing that border is not easy. I think the best course is for Pakistan and the United uh, and Afghanistan to work things out, and I believe there's an effort to do that. Uh, President Ghani is in Islamabad today, actually. Uh, General Sharif went to Kabul before he came. He's, uh, he planned his trip to Washington. So there is some effort at that. The problem there again is that it always comes down to India. Pakistan's concerns about Afghanistan are less about Afghanistan and more about India. There is the presumption that Afghanistan's close ties with India will create a pincer for Pakistan in which India will be able to squeeze Pakistan from both sides. And that becomes the policy challenge uh, for, for Afghanistan as well as for the Americans. Uh, how, do you, how do you convince Pakistan that that is not going to happen? Well, I, think, I think it's the deep-rooted problem of believing in balance of power, strategic parity, all this buffer zone business the British left behind. It is really bad, this whole conflict of Afghanistan for Pakistan. It is in Pakistan's interest that Afghanistan becomes a normal state, reduce its insecurities, and create a regional rapprochement with India and Afghanistan because they are needed to provide security in a broader sense. And it's in Afghanistan and India's interest for Pakistan exactly. to be stable and secure uh, so that it does not, out of insecurity, take actions that could create, uh, that could jeopardize relations for anybody or situation for anybody in the region. Dr. Weinbaum, why don't you take the last question well, and then we are already at 1.30. We were that, thank you, here. Ambassador. Uh, you know, all, TV Paul's book and the other books that have come out on on, on, on Pakistan's army are really generally negative as the army is, uh, is viewed. But can you say, and, and I'm picking up from so much else that's been said this afternoon, could you say that in a way Pakistan got the army that it deserved? <laughs> that's not negative. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I'm saying here that the kind of society that you've described, the people who put the names on the, on the streets, uh, who had the mindset uh, which, which led to uh, these kinds of distortions, uh, has produced, in a sense, and we're talking here about the failings of the political class uh, and, um, and, and leadership in general, so that it resulted in, a, in an institution which stepped forward because of the fact that society itself had created the conditions for it. I think, I think people will not uh, disagree with that. I certainly won't disagree with that. I mean, when I, when I started out and I said only 2,851 book, uh, uh, 2,581, sorry, 2,581 books were written in Pakistan. I mean, that's not a failure of the military. That's a failure of the society. That that society doesn't research, that society doesn't write, that society doesn't do scholarship. So it's not just the, the Pakistan's problems are partly a failure of the political class. They are partly a failure of the intellectual class. 
Because why aren't people researching? Why aren't people writing? I mean, you know, uh, why aren't people raising new questions and just uh, and, and debate? So uh, academia is declining. So those things cannot be blamed on the military. Uh, and in some ways, uh, a lot of civilians, and, you know, sometimes I've been accused of that, but I want this to be an occasion where I can say that, right? I don't want to be one of those Pakistani civilians who just uses the army as an scapegoat or the military as a scapegoat for overall social and societal failure. Everybody has to make a contribution. You can't just keep uh, blaming one institution and everybody needs to pull in one direction. That said, that said, uh, the fact that the military has had a disproportionately large, uh, larger-than-life role in Pakistan's life kind of attracts that commentary. But you're right. But you're right. It's let, about the society. Let, let me have a slightly different viewpoint here. My effort, by the way, is a diagnostic. It is not to put Pakistan in back. You know, unless you diagnose this a problem, like social social science problem, you're not going to get solutions. That's I may not be right, but the point is, people have to do that. Pakistanis have to do that, by the way. The outsiders are doing it. That's not enough. Internally, you need a lot more. But your question, the second question is the causal arrow. Where does it start? I think the military cannot just wash away its hands. Ziaul Haq is the man who started, as far as I know, the textbook revisions, and you know, under uh, giving no important science education. You know, uh, madrasas, of course, are there. But the point is that they did things that hurt the the free thinking, and civilians didn't help either. So it's, it's both. But the military cannot wash away because it was in charge more than fifty percent of the time. No, and even now it is in charge half of the time. So a hybrid system, if you want to call it. But you see, if you look at other cases, the countries where change took place is not because the military is fundamentally progressive. There are at least some men in the military who thought that country can do better things. They can, Indonesia, for instance, there's something called uh, Panchila, you know, the, the mild secularism, which is a military's innovation to that country to solve these multi-ethnic problems. So it's not clear the military is always... Uh, the source or the society just deserves it. A few people can change a country, uh, by the way, if they really want in charge at times. Well, on that note, thank you all for joining us. I hope that this was a productive meeting. Thank you, Dr. Paul. And thank you, Paul. We also thank Akil Shah for sending his PowerPoint, even though he wasn't here. Thank you all. <laughs>